from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It is indeed a distinct uh, honour and privilege for me to uh, to be here this evening and to uh, to give the the Stuart named lecture. I'm particularly honoured to to know that. Uh, uh, son and grandson of uh, uh, Air Vice Marshal uh, Stewart are here with us as well, and I'm um, uh, truly privileged to, to join the, the group of individuals who have provided lectures over the years, uh, some of whom are, are here in the audience, I know. Um, what I will do this, uh, this evening is to review um, activities over the last 10 years or so related to the development of commercial spaceflight uh, opportunities and um, uh, do a combination of both some of the work that I've done wearing my academic hat and research that has been in support of commercial human spaceflight in general and uh, some applications of that to the work that I was do wearing a different hat as Chief Medical Officer of Virgin Galactic um, in applying some of those uh, findings and uh, in the planning for uh, the upcoming flights with, um, with Spaceship Two. Um, first a disclaimer, as is often the case, is I'm speaking uh, for myself. I am not speaking on behalf of or uh, either Virgin Galactic or uh, the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration, and the research results that I will uh, summarize in some of this um, were conducted through funding that is provided by the FAA uh, Center of Excellence for Commercial Space Transportation in work that uh, I did while um, and continue to do um, while at University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. So with that, um, Five different areas that uh, I will touch on throughout uh, the lecture this evening. Talk a little bit about where we are, who's doing what in, in the industry. Um, set the stage with some of the regulatory um, and legal climate uh, behind, uh, behind uh, the development of commercial, offering commercial flights for uh, uh, the general public and preparation for that. Um, talk a little bit about some of the challenges that we face from the medical point of view in enabling a safe human spaceflight um, for the, the commercial public and what are some of the, uh, the showstoppers that we thought we would have and where are we today in understanding those. Um, then I'm going to talk some about the pre-flight training and preparation uh, that we use to both identify uh, and quantify the medical risk that we anticipate from individual uh, future astronauts and um, wrap up with a few highlights of things that have happened over the last 10 years in this preparatory uh, march towards uh, spaceflight um, coming to, to fruition in the, in the very near future. I've divided this uh, into kind of two sets of, of uh, activities. On the one hand, on the left, uh, Space Adventures is a company that has been brokering spaceflight to the International Space Station 
for those who, for whom um, anywhere from $20 million to $50 million is pocket change, um, where they spend uh, six months in preparation and spend a week on the International Space Station and um, travel by, by means of the Russian Soyuz vehicle. For these individuals, individuals, the medical program has been very extensive uh, in preparation and screening and so forth, uh, but it's a, a very limited program. You uh, may be able to, to buy a seat maybe once every two to three years uh, when there may be an opening. On the other hand, the, there are a number of uh, companies that are actively working towards offering commercial space flight um, uh, in a very different uh, uh, method of doing so. Virgin Galactic is one of those, and I'll talk uh, considerably more about Virgin Galactic, uh, uh, its model and, and its uh, spaceflight as we go along. But other companies are also offering uh, commercial opportunities. Blue Origin uh, with their new Shepard uh, uh, rocket, um, the new Glenn rocket that they offer is for orbital flight, the new Shepard for suborbital flight. Boeing is uh, very active in the uh, arena as well with their uh, CST-100 or Starliner as they've named their capsule and are under uh, contract with, with NASA to uh, bring that to human spaceflight readiness. Uh, SpaceX has probably made the most uh, news around the world with uh, their mini uh, launches um, and are in the final stages of uh, certifying for human spaceflight their, their capsule called the Dragon. Uh, up till now it has been used only for um, transport of articles back and forth to the uh, International Space Station. Uh, Orbital ATK is another uh, company that has uh, uh, developed both a rocket and a capsule and brings cargo back and forth to the International Space Station. Um, Sierra Nevada Corporation uh, is a company that has taken a different approach and their vehicle called the Dream Chaser, I'll show a picture of that in, the, in a moment, is a, is, is a lifting body, a winged lift, lifting body. Um, and Bigelow Aerospace is not involved in rockets or capsules at all, but provides space stations as a destination. And currently they have in orbit and have been there for quite a number of years now, two uh, scaled models of, a, of an inflatable uh, space station, if you will. And they have right now an inflatable habitat module attached to the International Space Station. So there's quite a range of um, activities that have uh, gone on over the last 10 and more years. So what, uh, what do the cur current capsules look like? Well, um, this here is the, the Soyuz capsule. That's the workhorse of, of the Russians and is the, uh, currently the only vehicle to take humans back and forth to and from the ISS. Um, uh, Blue Origin, a uh, picture of their capsule sitting atop New Shepard, um, will be offering suborbital flights in the not too distant future. Uh, this is the capsule of uh, Boeing, the uh, CST-100, um, uh, SpaceX Dragon capsule, 
and uh, the orbital ATK uh, Cygnus capsule. So all of those have somewhat similar shapes. They're sort of round. They don't have wings, um, and they uh, launch on top of rockets um, and return either under parachute uh, for water landings or they burn up during re-entry and are simply a one-way vehicle to, uh, to space. Um, and then Bigelow Aerospace, uh, as I mentioned, provides inflatable habitats as a destination. On, of the winged vehicles, um, currently under development and testing is Spaceship Two, Virgin Galactic's uh, suborbital spaceship, and um, the Dream Chaser of Sierra Nevada Corporation, which can launch atop uh, various rockets and be used either as a suborbital uh, up and down uh, vehicle or actually go into orbit and dock with the ISS. I put this chart up. This uh, came out of uh, some work that was done back in 2006. And it was looking to the future, predicting what would happen when. I'm not going to go through all of the details on this chart. Some of the names of companies have come and gone over the years since 2006. But it predicted that we would be a whole lot farther along uh, a whole lot fewer years than is actually taken. And uh, at the time this chart was made, we, were, we stopped at 2011 uh, because we didn't know what was going to happen after that and we thought all of these things would have happened by then. Most of these things have yet to happen and who knows what is uh, in the future. Um, so we have not been very good as a community in accurately predicting uh, the uh, development and maturation of, uh, of commercial um, spaceflight. That's not surprising. As many people have said, spaceflight is hard and it takes often a lot longer than uh, some of the optimism of, of the early days. Shifting gears just a bit to some of the regulatory and legal underpinnings that have um, both enabled, but also to some extent have the um, uh, prohibited some, some of the development because certain rules and regulations had to be met and continue to be met. Um, and the philosophy behind the medical standards or guidelines, I'm talking now uh, for the rest of the talk pretty much about the human side of things. Government programs like NASA, like ESA, like the uh, multilateral partners that control access to the International Space Station has largely been from the medical human point of view a program of exclusion. Um, you have to prove uh, beyond reasonable doubt that you can survive a space flight um, uh, without, without harm to yourself or to others. And so um, there have been many identified disqualifying conditions. Uh, the mission uh, must be assured without any impact from a medical condition occurring, limited risk of, of uh, medical events happening, and the mission is the most important thing. You must be able to complete the mission without uh, medical events interfering with that. The work on the commercial uh, human spaceflight side is a bit different in that 
It is, uh, has developed and continues to develop as a program of inclusion. The idea is to open space to the public, to open space to as many people as possible. And so it is um, geared towards accepting some level of medical risk. Uh, there are a number of individuals who want to fly for whom um, this would never have been uh, remotely possible under, under a government uh, exclusionary program. And the companies providing these flights are also in um, a mode of willingness to accept some risk uh, because the, uh, the product that they're offering, particularly on the tourism side, is one of uh, getting the views, enjoying the, the flight. There's not a, a government or military mission to be accomplished. The mission is providing a, uh, a vehicle to, to see the earth from, from above, to see the black sky of space and so forth. Um, certainly safety remains an absolutely key factor in doing that, but there's a willingness to push the, the boundaries and open up the opportunities to space to a wider audience. Under the ISS and Soyuz criteria, um, ag again, as I mentioned earlier, it's really um, one of exclusion and reducing risk of any medical events. Um, so there needs to be no need for emergency care. Nothing should go wrong medically. The, uh, the individuals who are, are, are selected must be able to demonstrate uh, total independence in emergency egress, for example. Um, they can, must participate in all the pre-flight training. So if you happen to have another uh, $50 million in your pocket and want to go to the ISS currently, um, you're going to spend about six months in Russia in training, uh, learning Russian, learning everything about that vehicle, even though the only instruction you're given is don't touch anything. Um, <laughs> you still need to know what it would do if you did touch it. Uh, and it's a three-phase process. There's a pre-screening, very extensive. Then there's a, a very intensive uh, medical examination uh, requirement. And then a, at that point, you get certified to start training. Um, that training takes some time. And uh, then there's a recertification for flight. So it's a, a very involved and uh, prolonged uh, process. There are possibilities of waivers. Um, if you look at some of the literature that's been published of uh, some of the individuals who have flown to the ISS uh, under this program, uh, some of them have had a lot wrong with them uh, and have had uh, pretty invasive procedures, surgical procedures performed to enable them to be accepted by the Russians and the other partners for ISS flight. Uh, so waivers are possible, but again, what's looked at is the stability of the medical condition and uh, what is the risk to mission success? And that risk needs to be driven to as low as possible. Um, and the, the medical standards document that underpins this is a very in, uh, intensive system-by-system system, um, description and um, auxiliary testing and uh, uh, training, things like centrifuge run, uh, spins and uh, zero-g aircraft spins, hyperbaric and hypobaric uh, chamber runs, vestibular testing, and so forth. 
As I mentioned, waivers are possible. Greg Olson is an individual who has flown to the ISS uh, and has permitted his medical data to be published and his name to be used. Um, and he had uh, quite extensive pulmonary disease. Um, he had surgical procedures performed to prevent um, the development of a pneumothorax or free air in the lung uh, before he could go and uh, extensive review. So it is possible. On the um, commercial side, there have been um, some interesting uh, regulations and uh, guidelines that have been proposed and put forth over the years. Uh, the Aerospace Medical Association um, undertook a, uh, a review of this and first published in October of 2001 some considerations and guidelines related to both suborbital and orbital um, spaceflight participants, SFPs is the, the official uh, uh, lingo of the FAA for uh, commercial customers. Um, and out of that came a long list of disqualifying conditions. Um, they reviewed that a year later in November of 2002 and um, considered only suborbital flights at that time because uh, that was what was appeared to be coming first. And uh, it is much more broadly based set of guidelines based on uh, five assumptions. And, and those were that the vehicle interior would be fairly small um, and uh, could accommodate perhaps four to six passengers that the flight would be suborbital of uh, one to three hours total duration from ground to ground um, with uh, a, a maximum of approximately 30 minutes in microgravity. Now the physics uh, of suborbital flights is such that 30 minutes in microgravity and still being suborbital is a pretty high suborbital flight. Um, the anticipated flights of Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic, for example, may have maybe four or five minutes of uh, microgravity or zero gravity. Uh, but that was the assumption that was behind their recommendations and that the cabin would be pressurized uh, to sea level. Uh, so there would not be a need for pressure suits. Um, the acceleration would be in the range of two to four and a half uh, GZ in the head-to-toe direction and, or in the chest-to-back GX direction. I have to remember I'm in the UK. That's GZ, uh, not Z. And uh, that the emergency procedures would vary depending on the vehicle involved and so forth. Other considerations that they raised that would need to be dealt with are the issue of space motion sickness, uh, pregnancy. Should a, a woman who's pregnant be allowed to uh, undertake a space flight? and um, uh, things like is there a, a minimum or maximum age uh, that could be accommodated. Um, the, the bottom line of this second uh, task force was this, this summary, I won't read it to you, but basically saying that uh, each company needs to decide for itself what uh, risk it's um, willing to, to undertake and uh, that sound medical judgment needed to be a part of that process. Um, on the regulatory side, the United States Congress passed what's called the Commercial Space Launch Amendments Act in uh, 2004, and at the time that that was passed, 
there was a lot of pushback by the industry wanting there to be less rather than more regulation. They said, we're just developing, you need to give us some latitude, we're not quite sure how this is going to go, and so we need some freedom to do that. And so part of that law was that there would be an eight-year period in which the FAA was prohibited from um, uh, putting forth regulations for occupant safety. Well, 2012 came and went, and there were no flights of uh, uh, this type yet, and so it was extended until 2015, and 2015 has come and gone, and now this prohibition against new regulations extends to October of 2023. We certainly hope by then that we will have a lot of data on which to base any need for or not need for regulations. The FAA itself produced a whole variety of guideline documents. Again, they're not regulatory, they're not mandatory in nature, but quite uh, useful both for the customer side, the spaceflight participant side, and for the flight crew. Now, there are some limited regulations for the flight crew, and I'll come to, to those in a minute. Um, again, 2005, 2006, uh, additional uh, documents from the Federal Aviation Administration related to uh, requirements for the crew members, the pilots and, and crew members, and uh, guidelines for the spaceflight participants. Um, the final rule that the FAA released said, okay, the flight crew must possess an FAA second class uh, medical certificate. The FAA's second class is different than European and UK second class. It is for pilots who fly for hire but are not airline pilots. That's called a first class. Um, and so the FAA said you only need a second class medical if you're a pilot. And spaceflight participants needed to sign a waiver. They needed to sign informed consent after being educated about the risks and they needed to have training in emergency procedures, and they had to meet security requirements. They had to go through the metal detector and make sure they weren't carrying a gun or a knife on board. Um, and that's about it. That's about it. Um, and uh, uh, additional guidance uh, documents uh, were released. Uh, assumptions were based on a cabin altitude similar to an airline, so six to 8,000 foot equivalent and uh, limits of G exposure of uh, four to uh, uh, four G in the head to toe and chest to back direction. I had mentioned uh, at the beginning the, the uh, FAA Center of Excellence for Commercial Space Transportation. This is a consortium of now 10 universities uh, that make up this Center of Excellence. And one of the tasks that we undertook very early on in uh, uh, when, when this was um, first set up was to try and take a look at all of the guideline documents that had been uh, produced by various organizations and see if we could come together in a consensus document of what the guidelines uh, should be because they varied quite a bit from from spot to spot. We included in this uh, undertaking participation from the industry as well as a, a broad range of, of medical input. 
Um, and we differentiated between suborbital and orbital, as well as between um, uh, uh, for both pilots and customers. So really kind of four different categories. Uh, the bottom line out of this uh, set of uh, recommendations was a, uh, a review and uh, active involvement of aerospace medicine specialists to conduct the evaluations and to assess the risk related to a spaceflight. Um, and this document is, is available through the Center of Excellence website um, and uh, is open to, to anyone. Um, then finally, in terms of the advisories that have come out, was this uh, produced in, um, here's my pointer here, uh, 2014, again from the FAA, recommending best practices for human spaceflight occupant safety. But what's interesting is, is their notable omissions section, which is medical limits. So you're on your own, whatever you want to do, uh, we are not including any medical criteria, and so we are still in that mode today. So we look at uh, medical standards as of uh, 2017. For crew members, we know that there's a requirement for a FAA second class medical certificate, uh, not very stringent. And for the rest of us, there are no specified regulations several gu guidance documents, as I mentioned. So moving on to the, the medical challenges, we, as I look across the, the last uh, decade, what did we know in 2007? And I, I first got started with uh, working with Virgin Galactic, um, uh, the beginnings at the end of 2006, and then from 2007 on, so it happened to make a nice 10-year uh, uh, set of years to, to review. Um, we knew back in 2007 that uh, of the customers who had indicated an interest and in put down deposits on tickets, the age ranged from the mid-20s to mid-70s, average age around 55. Uh, the gender distribution was about 80% men, 20% women. Um, and the medical history uh, and their medical status was largely unknown. You didn't have to uh, prove anything medically to buy a ticket. Um, and so when I started, uh, there was a group that I inherited that I knew absolutely nothing about. Uh, and that's, that's where we started. Psychological status was also uh, a big question mark. And so um, back in 2007, um, we had uh, a group of individuals, it was around 100 at that time in Virgin Galactic, that, uh, on which, from a medical point of view, I had very little information. There was also very little data on which to base um, decisions. Um, a lot of centrifuge work has been done over the years in many different countries. Virtually all of it has been military-oriented and directed towards young, healthy fighter pilots experiencing high G levels in uh, fighter aircraft. Um, we had some information on a single person, John Glenn, who flew at age 77 on the uh, space shuttle, and a few of the space adventures uh, uh, passengers who went to the International Space Station. Um, and as I said, no data as people signed up for a space flight. 
10 years later, what do we know? Where are we today? Well, in the United States, you have to sign an informed consent to take a space flight. In the, in the US, the minimum age at which you can sign for yourself is 18 years old. So that's, uh, that's the threshold age-wise. There is no upper age limit. And people have asked me a number of times, what is the upper age limit? Uh, age by itself is not disqualifying. We have current customers who are well into their 80s and one even in, well into his 90s. Um, and uh, uh, very much looking forward to their space flight. And I'm very much looking forward to hoping that we can do that. Uh, but that's, uh, as we all know, as we get older, things uh, start to go wrong. Um, we have very, very healthy people in the customer population, folks that run marathons, people that have climbed to the peak of Mount Everest, who have been down to uh, view the Titanic in a submersible, and done all kinds of other very strenuous activities. We also have people for whom um, the use of uh, medications to treat multiple medical conditions is their daily life. They're on medicines for diabetes and high blood pressure. They may have had a, a coronary artery stent uh, put in or uh, have had bypass surgery. Um, and uh, we also have folks that um, uh, are extremely stable uh, psychologically, have been through very intense uh, um, events in their life that could impose a lot of psychological uh, stressors. And we have people for whom this is um, not their norm, so to speak. Um, and uh, their psychological uh, level of anxiety is, is, uh, is unknown at this point. Um, so over the last 10 years, we've conducted uh, several research uh, studies uh, using a centrifuge that is at the NASTAR Center in uh, just outside of Philadelphia. And we have now, in three different uh, groups of, of studies, um, spun over 300 individuals um, of a similar age distribution uh, to the anticipated uh, suborbital uh, spaceflight age distribution and a similar set of medical conditions. Um, and out of all of that, to summarize uh, 10 years worth of research into, into one sentence, uh, people with well-controlled medical conditions did very well uh, in the centrifuge studies under the same G uh, acceleration profiles that they would experience in either a Virgin Galactic or a uh, Blue Origin or a um, uh, Sierra Nevada vehicle type of space flight. Um, but training and management of uh, not only medical but also anxiety and psychological uh, concerns is, uh, is certainly necessary. And over the last 10 years, I, I've had my top 10 list of myths that we've tried to uh, dispel with, with the data that we've acquired. One of those is, um, is there an upper age limit uh, for passengers? Um, my answer to that is no. Age by itself is not a disqualifying uh, factor, and I, I hope that we can, in fact, uh, uh, provide space flights safely for people well into their 80s and perhaps e even into their 90s. Uh, 
Another myth is that the use of beta blockers uh, as medication to treat hypertension or other things would be prohibited because one of the effects of a beta blocker is to suppress the ability of the heart rate to increase and we certainly need to have the heart rate increase, or so we thought, to counteract the G-forces as the blood comes out of your head down to your toes when the Gs are pushing you down into your seat. Um, what we've actually learned is that uh, beta blockers certainly suppress the ability of the heart rate to, uh, to jump up in the centrifuge. But as we get older, our plumbing gets stiffer and we actually had far more incidents of gray out or loss of peripheral vision in the 20 and 30 year olds than we did in the 70 year olds, um, even though they were on beta blockers. So, um, and that held consistently across the board. So um, that was news to a lot of folks and uh, um, uh, certainly was a, a good finding from my perspective and being able to open that that door a little further. Um, heart disease is disqualifying. Well, you would think that that uh, would be true, um, but we have spun people in a centrifuge who have had uh, cardiac bypass surgery, who have stents in place, who have had valves replaced, who have had uh, pacemakers um, in place, um, who have had congenital uh, uh, abnormalities that have been surgically corrected. <laughs> Um, and maybe we're just uh, have been very lucky. Uh, I hope it's more than luck, but we have uh, been able to demonstrate in our research study population that individuals with well-controlled and treated heart disease uh, have, have done just fine. And so that also has helped to open the door. Uh, diabetes would be disqualifying. To our knowledge, there have been no astronauts or cosmonauts who have flown in space with diabetes. We have uh, spun people in the centrifuge with implanted insulin pumps and other treatment for diabetes uh, who have done just fine. And so we don't consider diabetes by itself disqualifying uh, condition. Uh, history of mental illness. Um, we have uh, worked with people both as research subjects and others who um, are suffering from depression. They're treated uh, uh, for depression, bipolar disorder, uh, anxiety. Um, and so the history of mental illness uh, uh, within some limits is also not considered a disqualifying uh, condition. Um, and physical disabilities are disqualifying. Um, well, it can be. You need to be able to get in and out of the spaceship, um, but we have individuals who have had amputations and have prosthetic uh, leg. We have individuals who have had uh, knees, hips, and shoulder joints replaced. Um, uh, folks who have had uh, back surgery, uh, who have had fusions and so forth. And so there are certainly um, a broad range of individuals with some disabilities who uh, we expect can do, do well in a space flight. But the question is, where do you set the bar? If you make it too high, you limit the, the range of individuals that can undertake a space flight, um, and you make it too difficult for people to, to work their way through a, a waiver process, for example. If you set it too low, 
you run the risk of injury or death um, and a bad outcome, especially early on in the um, uh, in the development of a commercial uh, flight program, a bad outcome would uh, um, uh, have a significant uh, negative effect on the development of the industry. So nobody wants to do that either. Um, what are some of the operators considering? Um, well, they're concerned about the lack of standards and, and the liability that goes along with that. The informed consent process helps to mitigate some of that. Um, they're working with people like me and some of you in the room as uh, consultants in helping them to navigate that, uh, that uh, the world of, of what medical conditions uh, can be accommodated. Um, convening panels of experts to help with that process as well. Uh, planning training activities, um, using things like centrifuge rides, zero-g flights, and so forth to provide simulated uh, environments uh, to the space flight, and using that informed consent um, process to help limit their, their liability. Um, other things that have been talked about um, uh, amongst those of us in the medical community is could you tailor, <coughs> tailor a flight uh, for specific individuals with limited uh, medical uh, capability. Uh, could you perhaps fly to a bit of a lower altitude, still get to space, but to limit the Gs on launch and, and uh, landing? Could you fly a medical attendant, for example? So those kinds of things have been talked about. To my knowledge, no one is planning that type of flight uh, just yet, but that could be coming. Um, and certainly, as we go through the medical screening process and identify medical conditions that are of concern, the opportunity is then there for that individual to get uh, what I would call uh, a tune-up, get their hypertension uh, treated properly, get their blood pressure controlled, get their diabetes controlled, and so forth, so that it's not a one-shot and you're out, but you have the opportunity to improve your, your health status and to reduce your, your risk. Um, and uh, finally, um, the option is always available to, um, prior to the rocket engine lighting, uh, to abort a flight and say, hey, things are just not right, we're going to come back and land before actually doing the full space flight. So those are the kinds of things that um, uh, are under consideration. Um, so in summary, medical challenges. Um, Passengers, a very wide age distribution. Uh, many of them have one or more medical conditions that we have to be concerned about. Uh, the customers are, are literally around the globe. I don't know the exact uh, uh, country count for Virgin Galactic at the moment, but it is well in excess of uh, 30 countries. And as we know, medical treatment and medical status uh, varies widely country to country. And so that's an issue that uh, we have to deal with. Um, there is limited data, although we have more now than we did 10 years ago, to help make medical selection uh, decisions. And um, uh, there's uh, the need for appropriate training that goes into reducing the, the risk. Uh, other challenges are a high volume of patients. You know, we have uh, currently around 560 individuals individuals who have ever gone to space in the last 50 years that we have had space flights. That number could 
um, uh, be met and surpassed literally within a couple of years of the onset of new companies offering space flights. So the volume of passengers is, is certainly going to go up. And with that, the frequency of flights by crew members could go up. So right now, an astronaut may fly once every three or four years. You could have a pilot of a commercial vehicle fly once a week. Uh, maybe we'll get to a point of flying once a day. Um, what do we need to be concerned about in that scenario? Quite different from where we've been in the past. Um, and Spaceports tend to be located in very remote areas. Not all of them, I'll grant you that, not all of them. But part of what's advantageous for a remote location is if something goes wrong um, and things fall out of the sky, there's less to run into when you hit the ground. And so uh, the spaceport that Virgin Galactic will be operating out of, for example, is in uh, New Mexico in the middle of nowhere. Um, when I first uh, visited that before the runway was even built and I turned all the way around and I saw nothing as far as I could see and thought, oh my goodness, how are we going to take care of somebody out here and get them to uh, definitive medical care if we, if we need to? Um, I talked already about the, uh, the acceleration uh, uh, limits and, and exposures that we're going to have. Uh, cabin pressurization is planned, at least in the Virgin Galactic uh, model, and I believe in other vehicles as well, in around 6,000 feet, so in the airliner type uh, uh, cabins. Some operators will um, uh, use pressure suits. Uh, Virgin Galactic's vehicle is built such that it has redundancy, pressure redundancy built into the vehicle, and so neither the pilots nor the uh, the uh, astronauts' uh, customers will be in pressure suits. Um, other considerations are emergency uh, um, response capability, uh, supplemental oxygen, parachutes, and, and so forth. Um, for a suborbital flight, onboard medical capability is uh, non-existent to very limited. There's simply not time and opportunity to intervene medically um, in a suborbital flight. Uh, because you can't do anything when you're under the high G um, when the most likely time period in which a medical event could, uh, could occur. And so the name of the game is prevention up front and preparation to respond back on the ground. Um, training, testing, and, and risk reduction. So pre-flight uh, testing and training is geared towards identifying the risks uh, reducing those risks through training and, and uh, um, hardening or, or improving uh, medical status, uh, use of the informed consent process, um, and then advise the operators and the customer on the assessment of what that medical risk is. In the informed consent process, both parties have to agree to accept the risk. So the operator the Virgin Galactic, the Blue Origin, the uh, Boeing have to say, yes, we understand that this person has certain medical risks, and the customer needs to understand, yes, I have these risks based on my medical status, and both parties have to say we're both willing to accept that risk before a flight happens. And so that is the, the um, environment in which 
uh, that decision is made. Um, uh, Pre-flight preparation, um, use of devices like a centrifuge, like uh, aerobic, um, uh, acrobatic or uh, aerobatic uh, flights to uh, uh, provide higher G levels, for example. Microgravity, so zero G type flights. Altitude physiology training um, in a hypo, hypo, <coughs> excuse me, hypobaric chamber. All of these things are part of or can be part of the process and different operators will engage uh, different uh, sets of, uh, uh, of training devices to provide that that training prior to flight. Um, evaluating the medical risks um, uh, is then done taking, using this data. Um, and what we have done both in our research uh, studies and up till now in preparation for Virgin Galactic uh, flights is to group people in, um, in risk bands, green, yellow, or amber, and red, and using uh, the information we have in cardiovascular status, blood pressure, musculoskeletal uh, issues, exercise tolerance, uh, presence or, or not of diabetes, what is their pulmonary or lung function status, and then an overall assessment. And we end up with uh, uh, a a system in which two independent physicians uh, review the data and grade uh, the risk estimate. Um, without a doubt, this is a, uh, has a high degree of subjectivity in it because uh, we're doing this on limited data at the, at the moment. Um, but then that is refined as we go along. And so this is kind of a scheme in which we begin with uh, uh, a medical questionnaire, and we've used the same process for our research uh, uh, projects as well as the Virgin Galactic customers. We do a risk estimate. If we have questions or concerns, we'll get additional uh, information, review that, and then as we get into space flight, uh, every individual will undergo an examination by an aviation medical examiner. We've chosen uh, that rather than personal physician because whether or not the AME has any spaceflight experience or not, they are used to doing examinations on pilots. They're used to doing the kinds of evaluations in a structured uh, manner that we would want uh, to obtain the, the physical examination data. Uh, we'll re, re oops, just, uh, again, uh, review that and uh, further refine the classification of risk and then at that point, uh, a process of acceptance of the risk or mitigation and then acceptance of the risk, um, acceptance for the flight um, uh, that will continue on through the pre-flight training, the space flight itself, and then a post-flight medical debrief and evaluation to uh, make certain that there's no untoward effects from the flight itself. I'm going to finish up with what else has happened over the last 10 years. Um, as we've looked at uh, um, spaceflight activities uh, in the commercial sector, um, we've had some tragedies and we've also had some triumphs. So one thing that uh, 
happens when things go wrong with a rocket is it makes a lot of fire and smoke really, really fast. Um, this is the explosion of the orbital ATK rocket uh, a couple of seconds after rocket engine ignition um, and with the complete loss of, of the vehicle. This is unmanned, uh, uh, cargo only. Um, but we had that occur. Um, we had a Spaceship 2 accident in October of 2014. This was a test flight under Scaled Composites, who was the company that built the spaceship and was doing the test flights at that time, and there was an in-flight uh, breakup. Um, uh, one pilot survived, the other did not. Uh, we had um, SpaceX uh, during a fueling operation prior to, uh, to launch had an explosion during the, uh, the fueling and uh, lost the, uh, the cargo capsule on top and, and the rocket. We've also had some, some pretty amazing um, triumphs. Um, this is the uh, Blue Origin New Shepard uh, rocket. Uh, this particular rocket has launched into space and landed uh, on the launch pad five times. Um, in my mind, it's like dropping a pencil from space and having it land on the eraser and stick. Uh, amazing uh, achievement in reusability. Um, but they're not the only ones. Uh, SpaceX has done the same thing. And they've launched uh, cargo into space and uh, returned the first stage of the rocket uh, and landed it uh, uh, either on a barge floating out in the ocean uh, or back uh, on or very near the launch pad and done that repeatedly. And those are accomplishments that uh, uh, many people in the industry have told me that's never going to happen, that won't happen. Uh, well, it has and it continues to, to do. And as uh, Elon Musk likes to say, by being able to do this, it's the same as being able to uh, compare flying a 747 from New York to London, and when it lands in London, you throw it away, and you get a new one. Um, whereas recovering that uh, first stage rocket allows you to fly it back to New York. And so that's uh, certainly an accomplishment uh, that has occurred in the last 10 years. Um, I'm gonna finish up with another accomplishment that uh, may be near and dear to uh, those of you in the UK. And that was a Stephen Hawking flight in the Zero-G airplane uh, about 10 years ago uh, in April of 2007. Um, he had indicated in a, in a talk that he would love to be able to go to space. And that got the attention of uh, Peter Diamandis, who is a, uh, a medical doctor in the US, uh, but he's known most for his uh, development of the X Prize. Um, and, uh, uh, at the time, he uh, was also very involved in the Zero-G Corporation that offered Zero-G flights. Um, and so, um, uh, it was arranged that a Zero-G airplane flight would be um, uh, made available for Stephen Hawking, and this occurred at the end of a month-long tour of talks that Professor Haw Hawking had given throughout the United States. Um, I was privileged to be a part of that flight. Um, 
But what was interesting is at the time I was working for a company in Houston that was a NASA contractor. Uh, I was also working for Virgin Galactic. This was not a Virgin Galactic flight at all. Um, and it was a zero, uh, zero G corporation flight. Um, both parties said, we would love to have you do this, but you don't belong to us if you do it. Um, we're not underwriting your liability, um, and uh, um, you're on your own, take vacation, whatever, but you really ought to do it. Um, so the only person that really mattered is here in the audience, my wife, who said, you can't not do this. And so I did, um, and it was a, a great experience. Um, and so there were four physicians on the flight, two from Cambridge here uh, in the UK as physicians. One was an anesthetist and one a uh, um, pulmonary specialist. Um, and uh, the Zero-G company provided a physician and then I, I was on the flight. And uh, um, there were two of his caregivers who are both uh, nurses that were on the flight as well. Um, during that flight, uh, his physicians provided some uh, pre-flight medication to help stabilize him and to minimize any risk of uh, motion sickness. And he was monitored uh, fairly extensively with uh, blood pressure, a continuous uh, three-lead uh, electrocardiogram, and transcutaneous uh, O2 and CO2. Um, and, uh, as you probably know, uh, Professor Hawking has had a total laryngectomy, um, and so he breathes through a, a tracheotomy, and so we had a tracheal mask with uh, oxygen supplement if, if needed. Um, and there was also IV uh, access in place should there be a need to administer any medication. Um, when we did this flight, I insisted that we have a practice flight first, uh, so we can work out the procedures. And so the day before, we um, uh, did just that, and part of the um, development of this flight was to make it an educational opportunity, and so um, an eighth grade boy was selected by his science teacher to be the Professor Hawking double uh, for the practice flight, uh, which he did extremely well. And we practiced every bad thing that uh, you could imagine uh, that might happen in a flight and uh, made some changes in how we were going to uh, put the, the handholds and footholds in the airplane and so forth and um, got ourselves relatively comfortable that this could indeed happen. And then the next morning uh, did the flight with Professor Hawking. And we had decided that one parabola, one up and down, and one good picture was a successful flight. Um, the, this is just the, the heart, uh, blood pressure data, uh, heart rate, uh, respiratory rate, uh, oxygen level, stay between 90 and 100, uh, CO2 level. This black bar here is uh, we administered uh, some supplemental oxygen for a few things. And then the vertical gray bars are the parabolas. So there were a total of, of eight parabolas. Uh, we got through the first one. We, we took a little pause and said, okay, everything's all right. We'll do two more. We did two more, said, okay, that's enough. And Professor Hawkins said, mm -mm, it's not enough. So we said, okay, whoops, sorry. Let me go back here. 
we'll, uh, we'll do another one. So we did another one, not enough. We did another one, we ended up doing eight. At eight, we said, we're good. <laughs> uh, and so uh, I think the picture says it all. Uh, he never stopped smiling the entire flight. And uh, um, with each parabola, he, he's, he's floating in, in the airplane here, but we had uh, people on, on his feet and on his uh, uh, upper body. His, one of his nurses you can see uh, down below here. And um, he uh, enjoyed that opportunity very, very much. Uh, the question always comes up, is he going to get a space flight? Um, I'll answer that before you ask. Uh, Richard Branson would love to be able to offer a space flight to Professor Hawking. Whether that happens or not uh, remains to be seen. He is quite fra uh, frail and fragile. Um, and so um, uh, it's probably uh, yet to be determined whether or not that, that can ever happen. But. Uh, uh, it was quite a privilege to be able to help him accomplish uh, uh, what it feels like to float uh, microgravity within the, the airplane. And with that, I will conclude, and uh, I have filled up the entire hour. Thank you so much for the opportunity to, uh, to be with you this evening, and I uh, really appreciate the honor that has come with the, the Stewart uh, Lecture. Thank you very much. From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.